Lord, as we get into this study today, we just ask that you would provide uh, what is needed just to help us with the, uh, the teaching assistance um, with the technology. And Lord, more importantly, that our hearts would be open to the things of the Spirit and to the truth of your word. And we pray, God, that you would just minister to us this morning. Um, and Lord, for some of us as we're sitting here, maybe we just have never known how you've gifted us, how you've built us, uh, ways you've blessed us since we've come to know Christ. And so, Lord, may our hearts be open to things that you might speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you'd like to turn with me to Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8 and begin to work our way through this passage and look at some of the things that the Lord has uh, spoken with respect to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, the Word of God says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So from this passage, we see how Paul is just sharing with us some further ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he uh, highlights something that he said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, here in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You see, God has not only saved us and he's given us that saving faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells you and me that for by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of yourselves, meaning you didn't generate that faith on your own, that God assisted us in giving us the faith to believe him in the moment that we came to believe him. And then since we have come to believe him, Uh, He's given us faith to go forward in our walk with him and to read his word and to have faith in the truth of his word. In fact, when we get into Genesis chapter 1, you know, I'm going to say it again there, but I'll say it here. When you open God's word and you read something like, in the beginning God, that requires faith to understand that this is true, that God is telling us something that is true about himself and about eternity. That in the beginning, before there was anything, before there was a beginning, there was God. And that requires faith. And so when we read God's word and we read these things that are clearer to us, it requires faith for us to believe and to trust that what God is telling us is true, that it is truth, And that he's given us faith and he is developing our faith as we go along in life to trust him more with the things that we read and that we learn and that we understand and we see his faithfulness. That that increases our faith to trust him even more. 
So God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And if you think back over the course of your life from the time that you came to know Christ till today, I hope that you can see that you trust him more and that your faith has grown and that you have greater capacity to believe God for things that previously you had no faith to believe him for. So God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And for some of us, our faith might be a little stronger than the person sitting next to us, but it's not about a comparison. It's about growing and going forward in our walk with him. Then in verse 4, he says of Romans 12, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. He's restating something he stated earlier in 1 Corinthians. We all have a different function according to how God has gifted us. And so the point with all of this is that God wants us to use the gifts that he's given to us individually to serve him and to serve his body. So in verse 5, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So God desires that there would be a unity in the body of Christ, and he'll emphasize this also in the passage in Ephesians chapter 4, that he wants us in our individuality as God has ministered to and given us gifts, praise the Lord, um, that we also should uh, understand that we are not just individuals, but that we are part of a whole, and that we are part of a body of Christ. And, and you know, if, if you have a family with kids, this is something we have to impress in our, upon our kids, right? We have to let them know that they are a part of a family, and this is not all about them, right? We have to tell them these things so that they understand that uh, the family doesn't revolve around them, and life is not all about them. And so we want them to understand that. And so uh, Paul talked about this a little bit in Romans chapters 12 and four, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, where he made the point quite strongly that we are a part of a family and that it's not all about us. And it's also not about any particular gift, such as tongues or prophecy or any of those things that may, might be more visible. You see, we're a part of a body, we're a part of a family, and we should understand that as we live and work and serve alongside one another in the family of God, that we do so uh, individually because God has gifted us, but we do it as a part of a family, and we should always be thinking about other people. Remember that old acronym, JOY, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And that really fits what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians and in Romans about how we function in the body of Christ. And then in verse 6 here he says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So in other words, God has given us gifts and we're, it's not really up to us to say, okay, I'm going to go put it on the shelf and I might use it someday when I feel like it. You see, God has gifted us so that we can, so that we will use those gifts for his glory and for the good of his body. As God has gifted us, understand that with the gift comes a responsibility, that God expects us to serve him. He expects us to serve his body, and he wants us to take our gift and use it to edify, to encourage, to stimulate the body of Christ because every one of us is important. We looked at it this morning in Psalm 139. We are fear fearfully and wonderfully made. And it says, that my soul knows very well, right there in the scriptures as we read it. 
And in like manner with the gifts that God has given us, he's given us these gifts that we should use them. And now he begins to go through those gifts, and so we're going to, to go through them here and look at those gifts. So we've already looked uh, briefly at prophecy, but we're going to look at it again in actually Ephesians chapter 4, so I'm not skipping things. I'm just kind of trying to go through them in some order here. So he says in verse 7, uh, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, and he who teaches in teaching. So the word ministry here is the word from which we get our word deacon or servant, and it means to be a servant, to have a servant's heart, to see opportunities to be of service, and to seize them. It means to serve in practical ways and to wait on others. In other words, this is what Jesus said when he taught his disciples on the evening of the Lord's table. Right? Remember how he took off his outer garment and he put a towel on and he got a basin of water and he washed his disciples' feet and he said, let him who desires to be greatest among you be the servant. And he said, I have shown you how to do this. That was all in John chapter 13. And so this gift of ministry, I believe, is not just a gift to a particular individual and some of us can say I have it and others can say I don't. I believe this is a universal gift. I believe this is something that he has taught us that we are all to be ministering, we are all to be serving. So I don't think this is a unique thing that you know only one person has in a, in a body or that kind of a thing. We are all to be servants, we are all to adopt the attitude of, of being a servant. And he says here, if we have that gift of ministry and we'd like to adopt it and we want to take that attitude, then let us use it. And this is the second time now he's telling us to use what we've been given. Use it in our ministering. Remember the deacons back in Acts chapter 6. Uh, the word deacon's not used there, but the word servant is uh, in the text. And it says to us as we read it, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, because the apostles had a, a particular gift that they were given, a ministry, a charge from the Lord Jesus. And they said, this is not something we should be doing, but we want you to raise up and appoint from among you a seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And it's interesting, as we look at these men who said this, they also themselves were servants. You see, they did serve. Peter and James and John and Paul, they did serve. They were servants. They weren't saying that they were above it. But they were saying in this particular sense that God had called them to a particular ministry and that there should be others who should do uh, shoulder the, the work, should carry the burden and come alongside and labor. And then uh, the last part of this verse here, he who teaches in his teaching. You see, there is the, the ministry or the gift of teaching, and many people have the gift of teaching. Um, it even says in the qualifications of deacons and elders, especially for elders, that they should be apt or able to teach, capable of teaching, and that's one of their qualifications. But there's also a gift of teaching. Later in Ephesians 4, in a few moments, we'll take a look at the gift of pastor-teacher, uh, which is one of the offices that God has given to the church. But here, the gift of teaching, one who has the gift of being able to explain the Word of God and apply it to the hearts and the lives of the hearers. 
In other words, someone is capable of giving instruction. And this can take place in many venues, in many situations. It can take place in children's ministry. It can take place in home fellowships. It can take place in one-on-one discipleship. It can take place uh, in men's groups and women's groups. You see, there's no limit to the gift of teaching. And, And the gift of teaching is, like most of these gifts, is universal. It's for all people in the body of Christ. Uh, This person said, a person may be a teacher without having the heart of a shepherd, comparing this gift to the gift of pastor-teacher, and a pastor may be able to use the word without having the distinctive gift of teaching. So we'll talk about that as we get into that next section. And then overseers or elders are able to teach, and that's what I mentioned earlier, in the qualifications of elders. Then as we continue on in this passage in Romans chapter 12, it says, He who exhorts in exhortation, and he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So the gift of uh, exhorting or exhortation is the gift of stirring up someone to desist from every form of evil and to press on to new achievements for Christ in holiness and in service, aimed at the heart and at the will. So perhaps some of you have the gift of exhortation, and I think this is a wonderful gift, and it was interesting in talking to my daughter Rachel about this. She definitely has a strong gift of exhortation, but one thing that we've talked about over the years as she's grown is that sometimes for those of us who have the gift of exhortation, we can come off as a little bossy. We can come off a little strong, maybe a little bit insensitive in how we handle the gift and see, this is, these are ways that God wants us to grow. We might have that uh, gift such as this, but we need to use it in the proper manner with the proper attitude, with the proper heart. And so having the gift is wonderful, but don't allow the gift to be an excuse for being insensitive or for being bossy and for being pushy. Uh, I've, I've always said, just at least in my own personal understanding of this, that every gift has sort of a front-sided strength and a back-sided weakness. The backsided weakness sometimes are things like this where we uh, are not aware of how we come across and we think that we're exercising our gift by doing these things, by stirring up the saints and encouraging people to, to shrink back from evil and to press on to grow in Christ. But in doing so, to the recipient of that exhortation, it can feel a little pushy and a little bossy. So these are things we want to submit to the control and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and ask him to guide us in these things and to use these gifts in a way that is God-honoring. And then this one, he who gives with liberality. This is the divine endowment which inclines and empowers a person to be aware of needs and to help them meet those needs. Now sometimes this gift, just like all the gifts, involves a strong gift of observation. Now if you, uh, a great way of understanding this is uh, as a parent. As you watch your kids, you, you see them and you see that they need help. And so just by observation, you can see they need help. And so how do I help them? Well, uh, sometimes they need, they need the gift of giving, uh, just blessing them and giving them something that will move them along in their life. Sometimes they need prayer. Sometimes they need exhortation. And so with all of the gifts, we need to have this strong gift of observation or this ability to observe and to see what's going on and assess the situation. 
and then to come alongside and to use our gifts to help them or to, to use the gift of helps or to use the gift of ministry or serving to come and help those people. With the gift of giving, this divine endowment which inclines and empowers a person to be aware of needs and to help meet them, a lot of times that comes through observation. So we're just aware of a need. And now we have the gift of giving. Um, someone who is able, uh, because they have resources, and, and this specifically is referring to uh, material and monetary resources. God has often blessed people who know how to make money or have just blessed us with um, you know, a richness of resources in some way. And there's many scriptures that talk about the fact that everything we have, God has given us. And when we realize that, and then we couple that with this, this hard attitude of just wanting to be a blessing to others. Now someone having this gift of giving, and notice it says giving with liberality, is a person who just, they love to give and to bless people. And, and just say, hey, there's, I heard there's a need, here you go. And that, that can cover anything. That can have, cover taking meals to someone's house. It can cover helping someone when, you know, there's, we're just aware of a difficulty in their lives. So it refers to someone who is a vessel through whom God provides resources for his body. When someone who is called and gifted to be a giver stops giving liberally, they will often see their resources dry up having forgotten why God has blessed them. And so I think that statement can really apply to any of the gifts that God has given us. If God's given us a gift, and we've already seen how we've been exhorted in the scriptures to use the gifts that God has given us. Don't put them on a shelf. Don't make excuses for why I can't. In fact, a part of my story in accepting the call to, to pastor, I, I, I made every excuse I could think of as to why I shouldn't do it. And the Lord summarily took them away one by one. He removed them. And when I finally took the step of faith and said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. I am scared to death. I don't want to do this. As I've learned to walk in it, and as I've learned to take steps of faith and say, God, I will use this for your glory. I just hope you protect the people that I'm serving and shepherding from my idiocy and my lunacy and my insensitivity and that I don't hurt people. And we have to trust God that he will do that in us and through us. And it's interesting here, there's this uh, saying that's attributed to Jesus here in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul, the apostle, says it. It's not even written anywhere in the Gospels. But as he's talking here about um, to the Ephesian elders on the beach of Miletus, he says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that verse emphasizes the fact that he wants us as we are placed in the body of Christ to be a blessing to others. And even if you don't have the gift of giving in this way of giving monetarily and materially to others, we can still be a blessing, right? We can still give in multiple ways. It doesn't just have to be money and material goods. We can still be a blessing to people. And God has blessed us that we might be a blessing to others. 
Here in uh, Romans 12, verse 8, he continues on. He says, he who leads with diligence and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So the gift of leading or leadership, I just want to point out that this is a verb. Um, and it refers to uh, a leader as one who is called out to stand before, to be placed in front of, or to preside, to protect, or to guardian, or to care for. So just with that definition, you can see how the gift of leadership or leading is thrust upon many of us. Maybe we've never thought about that. But if you're a father, you're a leader. If you're a mother, you're a leader. Because you're shepherding those little kids. You're leading those kids, especially while dad's out working, if that's the way your situation is. But there are so many situations where we are thrust into a position of leadership at work. Uh, maybe in a social situation. God thrusts you into a position of leadership or influence. This can refer to anyone placed in a position of authority or superintendence. And notice that it says um, leading with diligence. So this is talking about the fact that we need to be faithful. When God has put us in a position of leadership, we need to be, do it in a careful way. We did, need to do it with haste, meaning we're doing it with deliberate, uh, deliberance. Uh, we do our best. We do it with excellence. We do it with eagerness, which is our attitude, that we're happy to do it. And we put forth the effort. And it can be translated many ways, but some, some of the more common ways this word is translated as leader, ruler, or director. And most assuredly, this refers to pastors, elders, and bishops, or those put in the position of leading in the church. So the gift of leadership or leading with diligence. And I think you can begin to see now how there's an overlap often with these gifts. As you start to think about, you know, I'm just thinking about myself here, sorry. Um, pastors and leaders in the church you, you start to think about they have the hopefully they have the gift of teaching hopefully they have the gift of shepherding or pastoring hopefully they have the gift of exhortation hopefully they have the gift of leadership hopefully they have a multiplicity of gifts so that they can better serve the church and so hopefully now you can see how God doesn't just give us one gift we've certainly all been given at least one gift but I believe he blesses us abundantly with multiple gifts. And that's why I gave you this spiritual gift survey so you can hopefully understand that there are other gifts he's given you. Some gifts might be more dominant, some uh, more in, inferior take sort of a second uh, or a back seat. But learn what your gifts are. Uh, this next one here, showing mercy with cheerfulness. The supernatural capacity and talent of aiding those who are in distress administering help and comfort to the suffering. You know, so often we see people who are hurting and suffering, and this again comes back to me to the, to the ability to have uh, uh, observation. Just look around, see what's happening. Have you ever been in the supermarket, and have you watched a mom struggling with a bunch of small kids, and they're just trying to get through the shopping list without an incident, and the kids are freaking out. They're flipping out. They're tired. They're hungry. There's four kids, and she's trying to watch them, or five kids, or three kids, or whatever. And, and she's just, I, I just can't even get down the cereal aisle without a fight. Well, you know, 
sometimes here's what happens, right? We see these things happen, and what happens to us? We go to a place of judging, don't we? If they were a better parent, they would know how to control their kids, and they wouldn't be so noisy and out of control and that kind of thing. But if you've ever been there, you understand, hopefully with compassion, that there's a need here, and they're struggling, and they're doing the best they can. And who knows, maybe it's a single mom. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a dad who's always on the road and he's just never home. Whatever it is, showing mercy, showing the capacity and the ability to come alongside and help someone in distress. I think nurses, uh, if you go into the field of nursing, uh, medicine like that, I hope you have the gift of, of showing mercy, of coming alongside and helping someone in need. And this, this gift is a can happen in many, many ways. I think often God gifts people and... Uh, the helps ministries of things like, you know, soup kitchens and those kinds of things. Hopefully they have the gift of mercy to come and to help those in need. But notice here there's a qualifier, shows mercy with cheerfulness. You see, there, like with anything, there can be this familiarity breeds contempt kind of a thing that happens. When we are in the position of just dealing with needy people all the time, uh, in the professional world, they call that sometimes compassion fatigue, where it's just like, I just get tired of helping all these needy people all day. Well, biblically speaking, the gift of compassion, showing mercy, is to be done with cheerfulness. And it's not just to have a good attitude, but you see, all of the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural gifts. All of the gifts of the Spirit come from God. And so, we need to ask God if God's given us, for example, the gift of mercy. God, help me to administer this gift with cheerfulness, with joy in my heart, that I'm serving you. And let's remember that with all of the gifts, we are first and foremost serving God. He is the blessor, the one who has blessed us with these gifts, and he wants us to use these for his glory and for the good of others. And so we need the fullness of the Spirit. We need the filling. We need the anointing. We need the baptism of the Spirit to be able to continually, day after day, week after week, exercise these gifts in such a way that it honors God and it builds up other people. So we want to shift gears now if you want to turn over to the right in your Bible to the book of Ephesians and deal with um, this passage here in Ephesians 4. And there's a, quite a bit here in this passage. We're just going to look at two verses. Uh, but here, for the sake of context, it says in Ephesians 4, 8, Therefore, he, that is God, speaking of Jesus, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So Jesus said to the disciples, and we've already looked at this earlier in the earlier messages, that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit and that he would give gifts to men. And here it is, uh, even in the Old Testament, in this passage of Scripture that's being referred to, that Jesus the Messiah would give gifts to men. And then in uh, Ephesians 4, 11, it says, And he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, 
for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now we're just going to go through verses 11 and 12, but you can see here by the context that again, very similar to Romans 12, very similar to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that we are to use these gifts for the good of the body of Christ to promote unity, to disciple people in the faith, to be a blessing to others, uh, to establish people in the faith so that they are growing in maturity in Christ. And, and as it says in verse 15, that they may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. So as we go through this, uh, we're, again, we're just going to focus on verse 11 and 12. So it says, and he himself gave. So this means that Jesus himself gave these gifts. Jesus is the administrator of the gifts through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And he established these roles and offices. Now what we see here particularly is four roles or offices that Jesus has established and given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Uh, in the Greek, the word gave is emphatic. And so it's emphasizing the fact that this came from the hand of Jesus. And if the, if the scriptures emphasize it, it is given to us for a reason that we might understand that he gave it. And that means that we're responsible to him, that we don't treat this lightly, that we don't look at any gifts that the Lord may have given us and look upon them flippantly or think, hey, I can do with the gifts whatever I want. You see, they were given to us by him and he expects us to use the gifts to serve him in the way that he has designated so how are those in the specific offices that are listed here uh, appointed or how are they recognized? How does this happen? Do they take or do they seize the office or are they raised up and are they appointed to these roles? How do, how do apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers end up serving in that capacity? Well, Jesus said all throughout his ministry, and it was interesting, just, if you just go in your concordance and look up the word sent, it's just overwhelming. How many times Jesus said, the Father has sent me. The Father has sent me. I can only do what he sent me to do. I can only say what he sent me to say. I can only be what he sent me to be. Over and over and over, dozens of times. Jesus emphasized the point to his disciples and to anyone who would listen I am sent by the Father. Now, why is that important? Because now we're being told in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world. I also have sent them. And the weight and the heaviness and the responsibility that Jesus has communicated that he was sent and that now he's using the authority that God gave him to send not only the first century disciples and apostles, but by extension us 
to be his ambassadors. You see, he wants us to understand he's communicating a weight, a significance, a responsibility that we are sent by Jesus. John 20, when he had said this, uh, showing them his hands and his side, uh, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense now? Receive the Holy Spirit as being said in the context as if the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. So that these disciples might now be empowered for service. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So in Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And now we're considering this question of how do people get into these offices, okay? Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You see it right there in what Paul said. The Holy Spirit, who is God, has appointed you to these roles or the, these offices of overseers to shepherd or to, to pastor. Poiman is the word for pastor there, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. There's the significance, there's the weight, there's the responsibility. What we do as shepherds is we're handling his kids. We're shepherding his people. They're not my people, they're his people. And that's something that every person in a role or in an office needs to keep clearly in their minds. Uh, Titus 1.5, Paul writing to Titus. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders. We see it's both the Holy Spirit doing the direct appointing, and then it's the Holy Spirit working through people who are qualified to do the appointing. So God uses both methods. He appoints and, and ordains directly, and he uses others. And then we see in Acts 13, it sort of comes back to a similar situation as Acts 20, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And this is where in the church at Antioch, the disciples were gathered. There was five or six or so people gathered. And as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, now separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. And then being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down. So it's interesting here. The Holy Spirit spoke to the group. The Holy Spirit had already spoken to Paul and Barnabas individually. And then they, having fasted and prayed, laid hands on and did the sending. So they sent and agreed with the Holy Spirit and did what he asked them to do. And then it comes back and says at the end, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So you see the work of God in and through men who are, and, and women who are his vessels. He looks at it and he says in the end, the Holy Spirit sent them. But the Holy Spirit sent them through the laying on of hands and people coming around them and saying, it seems like God's doing something in your life and we're coming alongside and agreeing with that. So you see how this works is the, that God himself working through the person of the Holy Spirit and even working through people establishes, ordains, and raises up people to these offices of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. So what we want to look at here 
Uh, and this is similar to what he said back in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. These apostles and prophets are appointed for the establishing of the church. We'll develop this as we go along. Evangelists for the extending of the church and pastors and teachers for the exercising of the church decently and in order. Now these are things that we've all covered up till now. We're just trying to bring it together. So the apostles. Now I want to spend some time on both apostles and prophets because these two gifts are the ones that I think cause the people, cause the church the greatest difficulty. I think often the, these can be the most misunderstood gifts next to tongues. And these are misused in severe ways, which we'll talk about as we go through this. But what we want to understand is how God wants us to use them and what does all this mean. So the apostles are those, uh, spe those men specifically whom Jesus appointed, the first century men, and he sent them to go out and to plant churches and to teach with his authority. It's very clear as Jesus gave the, the commission, the, the great commission, which is an extension to us, but he first gave it to them. And then the New Testament as it develops as the apostles going out, Peter, Paul, others preaching the gospel and churches being established. A simple definition of the word apostle, if you just look it up in any dictionary, is a messenger, an ambassador, one sent on a mission with orders. So the distinguishing features of a first century apostle were a commission directly from Jesus, being a witness of the resurrection, uh, special inspiration, having Jesus' authority, being accredited by miracles as God did things in and through their lives, and then an unlimited commission to preach and to found churches. So this is just looking strictly at those first century men who were apostles. Now, there are people, we've talked about this issue of cessationism, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you can see from these quotes uh, one person said, there's no continuity of the office of an apostle since in no place were the churches instructed to ordain apostles. Uh, so there's many quotes like this as you start to read on this where people say, so that was all done with and it was over in the first century. Another person said, there's no evidence that this office, apostle, prophet, or evangelist he's referring to, required gifts which are no longer bestowed and may be regard, regarded as permanent. And then here's another one who says, these are special ambassadors of God's work, though not in the same authoritative sense of the first century apostles. They were used to provide a foundation preserved as the New Testament and described in Ephesians 2.20. And what does Ephesians 2.20 say? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now here's what's happening. In the New Testament times, the only Bible they had was what? The Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written. It was happening live as the church had been formed and as these, these offices had been raised up. So considering things in their context, God did use apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers to establish the church when there was no scripture. The scriptures were spoken through these men. So there's that that we have to deal with. But I think uh, that this man here... Uh, 
dealing with how the first century apostles versus the office of, a pro, of apostle, prophet, etc. are here today, but not in the same authoritative sense as in the first century. And it's that that I want to focus on as we continue looking at this issue of apostles. Uh, many have the opinion today that the apostle may be a little more like a missionary in function and in ministry uh, because they go out and they plant churches and they have this pioneering spirit. But to hold this in check, remember Jesus said, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master. So as the one who did the sending, in no way should an apostle or a prophet ever th think that they are greater than Jesus or they um, somehow know more than Jesus. And that's one of the dangers with the modern day movement of those who call themselves apostles and prophets. Now, Sometimes when I bring quotes in, it's simply to clarify a point, and I might even share a quote as long as a paragraph from time to time, but this is going to be like three paragraphs, but I think if you'll bear with me in this, this man says it in such a way that I think you clearly understand the problem, but I think you also will understand where I think we come out, which is that these offices are for today, but it's just in a different way than it was in the, the first century. So this is all in, in the PowerPoint. It's all going to be you know, loaded for you so you can go back later and look at this. But I want to read it to you. I apologize for the lengthy quote. Although it is true that nobody since the first apostles has been invested with their authority, it seems right to say that one essential ingredient of their ministry, as in planting churches in virgin territory, is of prime importance in every age. A church is planted when individuals in an existing congregation are commissioned and sent out into an area to found there a church which is grounded in the teaching of the first apostles. That's what we just looked at in Ephesians 2.20. And this apostolic ministry, as distinct from the unique work of those first apostles, is essential if vast areas of the world today are not going to remain unevangelized. It is this foundational ministry which Paul seems to have in mind here. Such apostolic men appear to have a widespread of gifts in evangelism and prophecy and teaching and pastoring. Those are just examples. And they use these gifts to establish a church and then move on after the pattern of Paul's on own ministry. And in this way, he left behind a team of elders in each town to carry on and increase the work that he had begun. Now, this is what we find in the book of Acts. So, that's apostles, but I, I want to sort of lump together apostles and prophets because these are very similar things. And, and as with apostles, modern prophets do not speak in the same authoritative sense that the first century prophets brought uh, God's foundational word. So at the outset, we must stress that as with the ministry of the first apostles, so with the prophets who with them became the foundation of the church, their authority is unique and unrepeatable. Whatever Paul means in encouraging the gift of prophecy, he does not suggest that any Christian can be on a par with those original prophets as organs of divine revelation. As subsequent manifestation of this gift must be submitted to the authoritative teaching of the original apostles and prophets as contained in the canon of Scripture. So is there then a subsidiary prophetic gift in ministry today? And if so, what is it? The New Testament draws clear distinctions between preaching and teaching and prophecy. An important principle to follow is sketched by Paul himself when he both stresses the special value of prophecy and wants every Christian at Corinth to use it. That's when Paul was speaking in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. In other words, 
we must look for and expect to find an understanding of the New Testament gift of prophecy, which is neither banal, meaning boring or lacking in originality, nor esoteric, likely to be understood only by a small number of specialized people. It is presumably a gift which at the same time uniquely strengthens the church and is accessible to any member. We must not trivialize it in our attempts to understand it, nor must we make it so specialized that it lies beyond the reach of most Christians. It is very easy to empty the gift of prophecy of its unique, immediate, and distinctive content. It then became... Uh, it then can become nothing more than uh, sanctified common sense if we do this. The evidence of the scriptures and of church history, early and current, makes such a conclusion invalid. Michael Green's working definition of prophecy, a word from the Lord through a member of his body, inspired by his spirit and given to build up the rest of the body. Such a ministry is available to every Christian as the Holy Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. The gift is, therefore, for all Christians earnestly to desire. Whether or not the Lord chooses to distribute it to all, we conclude that all Christians can be used in the gift of prophecy, but that only a few will be used with sufficient regularity for them to be recognized as gifts from God to the church as prophets, as in the fit of prophecy is to be the, uh, the office, I think, of prophecy is to be distinguished from the office and ministry of a prophet. Uh, even then, such prophets are not on a par with the original prophets, either in the Old or the New Testament, and must uh, come thoroughly under the authority of the scriptures, both in their conduct and in the content of their utterances. But continuing prophetic ministry is essential today if the church is not going to settle down into a comfortable conformity to contemporary culture. What's all that saying with respect to apostles and prophets? It's saying this, they do exist today, I believe, but not in the original sense of apostle and prophet of the New Testament as they were being given scripture directly and they spoke the words of scripture and gave them to the church and thus established the foundation of the church as related to us in the book of Ephesians. Now, why do I say that? At the bottom here, I cite what I call the unholy example of the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation Movement, the Kansas City Prophets, IHOP, the International House of Prayer, and the churches that are offshoots and identify with these movements. What is all this about? These are people who claim that they are modern day apostles and prophets. And in their claim, they say that when they speak prophetic utterances, that those utterances are on the same level as scripture. And when they do that, they put themselves above the scriptures. Do you understand the difference here? So they've taken the original meaning and said that original meaning that the, as Jesus gave apostles and prophets those offices to the church for the establishing of the church that today going forward there is this new unchartered territory that only apostles and prophets and if you go and you read on this stuff they actually say God has reawakened these offices that, that have been dead for 2,000 years and that there are special people who are being awakened with these ministries of the original apostles and prophets and that they are bringing this in now and new scripture is being spoken by these people who claim to have these offices. And I think that's, that brings grave danger to the church because now whatever they say according to them is scripture. So 
this is very important for us to understand that people can take the gifts of the Spirit and things that God intended for good, and he intended to be a blessing to his church, and they've taken it and turned it to something else, and it very quickly, I think you can see, can turn to, it's kind of this we for and no more, it's only our church, it's only our denomination, it's only those who believe exactly this, and then whatever we say is in addition to Scripture, and that new scripture that we're speaking is authoritative and you must submit to it. Uh, to me, that's severely dangerous. So I went through all of this to try and point out for us that I believe that the, the offices of apostle and prophet do exist for today based on the things that I've tried to share with you, but in a different way. And they're certainly subservient to the scriptures. And when people who are, have those gifts of apostle and prophet, and I believe in the, in the very similar vein that the apostles were sent out to plant churches, a lot of the people today whom God has gifted to go out and plant churches are functioning in sort of an apostolic way. And as they go out and they, they speak um, these prophetic utterances that are given to them by the Holy Spirit, those things will always agree with scripture as it already exists to us. And that will encourage the church and maybe stimulate the church. And I think those who speak with what I'll call a prophetic edge often are going to have the gift of exhortation. And they're going to be encouraging the church to do what? To obey the Lord. To obey his scriptures. To obey his holy word. But not to speak some new thing that, you know, we have no way of validating. Is it scripture? All, the only validation we have is they say it's truth. And you see, that's a very dangerous place for us to be. So I, ho I hope that made sense, and if this has troubled you, I'd, I'd love to talk with you about it. But these two gifts in particular, in my opinion, are the ones that create the most dissension and danger um, in the church today, and especially with this movement that's out there and is very alive and very real. There's a lot of people caught up in it, probably even people that you know. So as he continues here, he talks about the gift of evangelist, these are the divinely equipped, called, and empowered people to preach the gospel and to reach lost souls. These are the people who extend the church by preaching the gospel. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of that. And then he comes to the gift of pastors and teachers. And the, the Greek construction indicates that this is not two gifts or two offices, but one. The office of pastor and teacher. Um, no man is fit to be a pastor who cannot teach, and the teacher needs the knowledge which pastoral experience gives. The word pastor is the word poimen, and it means a shepherd or a protector of the flock. So I think you can see by this definition that one who simply has a gift of teaching doesn't necessarily mean that person is a, is a pastor or has pastoral gifts, but a person who is a pastor and teacher has that combination of having uh, the ability to shepherd the flock and to care for the flock while also having a gift of teaching. And so it's a unique gifting that God gives to the church. And so there's some scriptures here where it talks about First uh, Peter, the shepherd of the flock, um, is a person whom God has appointed, but then he comes back in 1 Peter 5, 4 and, and reminds us that Jesus is the chief shepherd. So in essence, he's reminding us that anyone who is appointed as a shepherd or a pastor is an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd who is Jesus. Uh, John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Same word, poignant, I'm the good pastor. Who's the best pastor? Jesus. Always. 
Um, and so the other scriptures just bear this out. They point to the fact that uh, we need shepherds. Shepherds are important to the body of Christ and pastors and teachers. And so, again, we can go through uh, all of this here, and I'll leave it in the slides for you to read later, but it says very much the same things we've already said about how um, important it is that all of four of these offices or functions are, are working in the body of Christ today. And notice that in verse 12 it says the purpose of those offices is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. The purpose of the establishing of the church and the evangelizing and bringing people into the church who need to be saved and building them up in the faith is so that we're all equipped for the work of the ministry. The word equipping is only used here in the Bible and it means to prepare, to equip, to perfect, to furnish, to fit up. So it's like bringing someone in in basic training and giving them the tools and the implements of their warfare, teaching them the scriptures, preparing them and how do they live life and how do we now view life through the lens of scripture and through uh, the fact that we now have the Holy Spirit living within us. Uh, what does all this mean? What does it mean that I'm a new creation in Christ and how do we disciple people and build them up in the faith? That's the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is the work of the church. It's the work of taking the gifts that God has given all of us and that he's distributed and using them for the good of the church and then also using them to go out to the world and to be Christ to the world. And notice in Ephesians 2.10, after it talks about how we've been saved by grace through faith, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry in the body of Christ. And it's for the edifying of the body. Now we've already talked about this, but just to remind us, Edifying is building up. It's a construction term and it speaks of our being built up in the Lord. The idea of edification is to cause growth. A word of prophecy or any of the other gifts will build someone up. It will help them grow in the Lord. And all of these gifts are designed to build people up but never to tear them down. So if we see a gift being used in such a way that it's tearing someone down, then that's not of the Lord. It's not a gift of the Spirit being used for godly purposes. The word edify can mean the act of building up from foundation to roof. And so this issue of building up or edifying is always talking about starting at a foundation and laying a foundation and then building on that foundation and building a completed and a finished work. A house is a building to shelter people. When one is in public worship, the paramount concern must be how all the believers should be built up and not how someone or a small group may selfishly benefit by the public experience. In Christian worship, individuals ought to be concerned with how they can, be, how they can spiritually benefit others by what they do or say. It's just a different way of expressing how the gifts are functioning through us. And coming back to our passage here in Ephesians 4, the purpose of all of this building up, the purpose of these four roles or offices is to bring us all to the unity of the faith. It's to teach the scriptures and to bring us to that place of fullness in Christ, bring us to the knowledge of the Son of God, that we should be mature, that we should no longer be like children in our thinking. Paul says this over and over and over in his epistles, that he wants us to come to a place of maturity. He doesn't want us to be tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. 
that's what I've tried to do today by highlighting this issue of apostle and prophet and the new apostolic reformation and these movements that are out there um, deceiving people. Uh, but speaking the truth in love, and there's a good way to understand the gift of exhortation, speaking the, gift in, uh, the truth in love, that we may all grow up into all things into him who is the head, even Christ. The goal of the gifts is to bring us to the place that we are growing in Christ and that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, I'll let you read this later, but this is just looking at the issue of what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this is about how God is building us into the image of Christ. And he desires that we look like Jesus in the way we represent him to the world. So, in closing, we should be careful to distinguish between divine gifts and natural talents. No unsaved person, however talented, could be an evangelist, pastor, or teacher in the New Testament sense. Neither could a Christian, for that matter, unless he or she has received that particular gift. The gifts of the Spirit are supernatural. Let's remember that. They enable a person to do what would be humanly impossible for him or her. So as God has given us of his spirit and he distributes these gifts severally as he sees fit, let's remember that these gifts are supernatural. They come from the spirit of God who is God. And he gives them to us divinely and sovereignly so that we might be his servants doing his work. Peter said these words, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Sounds familiar to what Paul said, doesn't it? As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line in everything that we do. To whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. And as a wrap to the series, I come back to this verse that we shared at the beginning. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's ask God to give us the Holy Spirit in fullest measure, to hold nothing back, that we might receive all that he has for us and that we might grow in the gifts of the spirit that he has given to us and that we might use them for his glory and that we might take the gospel of Christ to the dead, the dying, the lost world, the world without hope and that we in the church might be what Jesus said, that the world would know that we are his disciples by our love for one another, which is an indication of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving gifts to us and for equipping us so that we can be your servants. And may we serve you wholeheartedly and with joy and with complete dedication, with our hands open, with our head up toward heaven saying, God, fill me and use me. Here am I, Lord. Send me. In Jesus' name, amen.